0: then, I need you to please go to Lumberjack Sermon number one, please. Thank you. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 2. That is where we will be for today. It is fitting on Lumberjack Sunday that we start with the first tree in the Bible. I will also say that I may or may not have told all of my kids to vote for option three. And option one still won. So, not going to contest the results, but here we are. Genesis chapter 2 and 3 offers so much of an origin story for us as humanity. So much is learned about the nature of who we are, what our tendencies are, what our weaknesses are, what our strengths are. And not only that, but it sets the theme for the whole Bible. In so many ways... When you're starting to write a book, which my wife, as an editor, that's what she does professionally, she gets to read a lot of them. And she can usually tell within the first chapter if it's going to be a book she's going to like or not. Because how they start the book is going to frame how the whole book runs. How you draw your people in, what you choose to reveal in those opening pages is going to set the narrative for us. What does God choose to reveal? A couple of key things. Out of all the things that God should have, could have started his story with, he started with God the artist. There's many sermons that could be given about God's artistry, his creativity, and the fact that he loves that. That's not this sermon. We see that we are made in his image, in his likeness. That means each and every one of us has value. We're important. We're special. Also not this morning's sermon. This morning's sermon sets up the theme of sin, defeat but the promise of victory. In one moment, the universe changed as Adam and Eve partook of the apple, figuratively apple, from the tree. Let me set up the scene real quick and then we'll jump into the story of the day. Where's my little clicker? Ah, here we go. There it is. So God created the world, Genesis chapter 1 verse 2, through Genesis chapter 2. And then out of all of the beautiful creation, God took everything he loved the most and put it in a singular sanctuary in the center of so many very important rivers. All the best trees he brought to the garden, he brought Adam and Eve there as well. And from this sanctuary, God gave man a very ser- important series of commands. Be fruitful and multiply. Subdue the earth and control it. Have dominion over it and take care of it. This place, this sanctuary, was the first taste of heaven that we get in the Bible. Of what it's going to be like to be with God forever. We see glimpses of really pretty and poetic moments as Adam and Eve are walking with God in the cool of the evening through the garden. A stunning image of that moment when we are with God forever. There were two trees in the dead center of the garden. In fact, God kind of built the whole garden around it, the orchard of Eden around it. The first is the tree of life. A tree that, as the story goes, gives immortality. It's a symbol of their relationship with God. But in the shadow of the tree of life is another tree. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The only command, the only prohibitive command Adam and Eve had. Don't eat From the tree. And then Eve met Satan. And the rest is history. She did, and sin entered into the world, changing everything. In one moment, there was so much that happened. We as people became corrupted, nature itself became corrupted, and the idea of power became corrupted. In one moment, the universe shifted on its head, it fractured in half. And God's design for the sanctuary of Eden, the hope of tomorrow, was seemingly thwarted, ruined, by one choice. Now one thing that's really gripping about the Bible, and sorry, there's going to be a lot of these moments today where I'm going to kind of nerd out. You just got to roll with it. By now you should be used to it. To me, the most beautiful part of the Bible is the narrative element of it. The fact that God chose a story. My, for Lent this year, I decided to try to read through the Bible in 40 days. It is not going well. Uh, it's like 32 chapters a day, so doing my best. I figure even if I fail, I read a lot more than I would have usually. And through it, I have found that reading it in quick succession, you, you find that it truly is a story, a beautiful story. And you know, the way we usually read the Bible is we read a couple chapters here, and then we wait a couple days and read it a couple chapters there, and a couple chapters, and that's a good way of doing it, but to sit and read it all. The story that's being painted is so stunning. So many moments in this scene that we're not going to get to. In Genesis chapter 3, I invite you to like read it on your own time and draw comparisons to what happened in Genesis 1. So many little moments that occur that give a, a segue into what's going to happen. So many little Easter eggs are hidden in that story for what's going to happen later in the narrative. And it sets it all up in this way. Corruption is the key of this tree of death. We were corrupted. Creation corrupted. Power. Corrupted. Isaiah, reflecting on the idea of sin that came from the garden, had this to say. But your iniquities have built barriers between you and your God. And your sins have made him hide his face from you so that he does not listen. In one moment, the purity of God came into conflict with our own weakness. And God was forced back to take a step back and let us have dominion and reign. In one moment, the weaknesses of humanity manifested in contrast to the beauty of God. And we were, well, ashamed. The first thing Adam and Eve did was actually cover themselves because they knew something had changed. We were not what we should have been. In fact, today, that is a huge part of existential crisis. The number one cause of depression in uh, the Western world right now is a lack of purpose or meaning. You know what that means? That every person that walks the earth knows that deep down there's something that's just not right with the way they see the world. There's a reason that every person in the entire world looks at injustice and hates it. That we all rebel against it, that we look at it and say that's awful, that puts a knot in our stomach. The reason why is because we know deep down what should have been. We have a glimpse of it in our very bones. We were made for more. We were made for better. Not only did we bear the consequence of this moment... But Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, the ground, earth itself, experienced conflict. Everything about creation began to fall apart. The beautiful order of God where lions sat with sheep and everyone was in unity was overturned. Creation became broken, cannibalistic, violent. Even Paul writes about that in Romans chapter 8. Creation itself will also be set free from the bondage of corruption into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that all of creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Creation itself feels the ramifications of that one moment at the tree of death. Corruption of us, of God's world, and even the idea of power. In the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1, God made two kings, a king and a queen, I should say, over the universe. He gave everything he had created over to Adam and Eve and said, now it's your turn. You have dominion over it. I'm giving this to you. It was supposed to be our kingdom, our domain. We were supposed to continue God's ideal of creation, continuing the creation process. And as soon as we got handed the keys of the kingdom, we turned and we handed them away. So now the entire world is, as Ephesians 2 2 says, under the rule of the kingdom of the air, under Satan the ruler of this world, for the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We see the corruption around us, the hurt, the pain. We see loved ones that are struggling. We struggle with this idea of corruption from all the things that happened in this one pivotal story, this moment to start the narrative of the Bible. We see Satan's success leading him to become the father of lies, The adversary, the accuser, the roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And we find ourselves so frequently his prey. The world itself rebelling against what it should have been. That was the dark part of the lesson. It's about to get a lot happier, I promise. Just needed to set the stage. When I uh, was teaching creation not too long ago to some of the kids, we were talking about the narrative of the Bible. So we were talking through the stories that kind of move the narrative forward. In fact, for those of you who are here on the Sunday morning where we did our combined class, that was the culmination of that series, one of the kids asked me a question that really hit me hard, a question that I've wrestled with. Why did God include this the tree of death? What was the point? Everything was perfect, everything was good. Why? Why throw a wrench in the plan? Why allow something like that to undo it? What was the purpose of this tree in general? This morning I'd like us to answer these questions. I'd like us to answer these questions because I think in the answers, we're going to find some very important truths. Important truths that are going to allow us to stand in front of a tree of death and undo the mistakes of our past. Allowing us to be empowered to make better choices, decisions, and life-altering moments that we can take back from Satan. Life is a series of choices. Each one of us make them every day. It took one really bad one to change the outcome of history, and it could take one really good one to change it back. Each and every one of us have the same power at our disposal that Adam and Eve had the same power for good or the same power for evil. And every choice we make changes the world, however small it may be. So it's time that we empower ourselves to make a different decision at our tree of death. So let's start. God made us rulers. God made us warriors. God made us powerful. The word that's used to describe us, the, the dominion that we're to have, is kibosh, which literally means a term for conquest and control. It's almost exclusively used in the Old Testament for battle scenes. God says, hey, I'm putting you in a battlefield. Prepare yourself, because it's it's going to get hairy. But you're ready, you're made for this, and you're ready for it. God knew that from the very beginning there was going to be conflict between us and Satan. He knew that was inevitable. So one thing that really jumps out to me is... Why put the tree there? James chapter 4, verse 7 offers us an insight. may not make sense at first. We'll come back to it. Submit to God, but resist the devil, and he will flee from you. We were given and do have the power to fight evil. That's something that was intrinsic in the way we created as God's warrior kings. We were given the power and have the power to do good, to resist Satan, and I think most impressively, have power over him. Sometimes I think in the church we have this broken model of Satan, right? That he's almost equal to God. That he's like almost as powerful as God. And that he is like so much greater than we are. The Bible paints a very different narrative. That we frequently are on his level, if not stronger, empowered by God's love. We were designed to be able to overcome Satan. To fight against him, the roaring lion. We see glimpses of it throughout the Bible. Some of the weirdest stories in the Bible. Like, I don't know if you've ever read Jude, or if you have read Jude recently. First of all, it is a trip. If you're going to do it, just prepare yourself because, boy, howdy, there's a lot there. It's like 21 verses, and it takes me like three hours to read through. There's this random line that's dropped about how Michael and Satan fought over the, the body of Moses. Don't ask me where that's from or what that's about because I have no idea. But in the middle of it, Michael looks and looks at Satan, and he goes, The Lord rebuke you. Who are you? And he leaves. We see an instance in Zechariah chapter 3, Satan in front of a guy named Joshua condemning him to judgment. And the angel of the Lord walks in, interrupts Satan and says, the Lord rebuke you. And Satan left. The man was saved. We see that with Jesus at the end of the temptation narrative in Matthew chapter 4. He rejected Satan and Satan left. He fled. See, we have that power today. And we had that power then. So let's explore a hypothetical. Eve at the garden. What happens if she says no? How could that have changed our history? And how can that change us today? The tree was there. It gave free choice. It gave choice to Eve, empower her decisions. If God created a universe where there was no temptation of evil, there also could be no possibility of love. The reality is, in order to have love, you have to have the risk of hurt. That's what makes it love, right? If I were to put a brain chip in my wife, and I were to program her to do all of the right things, it would take about 11 minutes before I'm bored out of my mind. Because that's not love. Love is real. It's three-dimensional. It has shape and character. It has conflict, it has choice, and it always carries with it the risk of rejection. That's what makes it thrilling. And That's what makes it beautiful. God created a world of love. Guess what had to be there? Free choice, and this tree is in the example of it. But I want to be very clear on something. Just because there had to be free choice doesn't mean that God left us out on a ledge. In fact, I think he did everything possible to ensure that Eve could have said no. I believe he did everything possible, stacking the neck as far as he could go, in order for Eve to be able to say no. According to James chapter 4, verse 7, if Eve would have said no, Satan would have had to have fled. Sin would not have separated humanity from God. Satan would not have and could not have had dominion over this realm. The question I was wrestling with with the teens is, where would he have gone? He was already kicked out of heaven. It says that the gates of heaven locked behind him. The only other place was here, and if he's rejected from here, what happens then? We see instances of it in the New Testament when Jesus casts out demons and they freak out. Don't send us back to the outer darkness because that was the only other place they could go. So God created a stronghold, a sanctuary, gave them a tree of eternal life to constantly remind them of what they had before them. He gave them power and dominion, the ability to fight and control, to be kings and queens for God. He gave Adam and Eve a chance in one moment, even choosing the battlefield that it was all going to happen on. Gave them the power to say no, the location to say no. And even they had to say yes in the shade of the tree of eternal life, like it's right beside it. God stacked the deck so that even one moment could have eliminated the threat of Satan. But she didn't. God did everything possible, empowering us in every possible way to get us to that moment, to get us to that tree, the tree of death, so it could become our tree of victory. It could become the place where humanity eradicated evil before it ever really took hold. A beautiful reminder. But that's not the world we live in. We do live in a post-Genesis 3 world. I'd invite us to go back to that tree. Because in many ways, I think we still find ourselves there. God has done so much in our life to put us in moments, even choosing the battlefields in the moments, where we can say no to Satan and we can win. us the power to overcome temptation and sin. He even knows what to do, who to surround us with, in order for us to accomplish it. We find ourselves at the tree of death so many times in our daily walk. Moments where God is like, this is a moment for you to win. And so frequently we don't. We do the same thing Eve did. Same thing Adam did. We choose the tree of death. But imagine how much different the world would have been had Eve said no. Had Adam said no? And imagine how much different our community would be if every person in here had the power to overcome evil like that. What if we ourselves, every time we find ourselves a tree of death, we make the decision that wasn't made. And we choose King Jesus. Choosing instead to use our God-given power, the power instilled in us by God himself, our own image, to resist and fight Satan. There are 100-something people in here, 120-something, 30-something people. I'm not good at math. There's a lot of people in here, and a lot of people that live in different circles and do different things. But all of us share one thing in common. You were designed to be so much more than you are. I was designed to be so much more than I am. And God constantly puts us in moments where we can prove our worth, strengthen ourselves, and become greater. So how do we do it? When we find ourselves in front of a tree of death, what do we do that Eve didn't? How can we learn from this initial story that set it all up? First, let's start with the easy one. Think the, oh, there we go. Keep your eyes on the right tree. Romans chapter 5, verse 18, so then as through one trespass there is condemnation for everyone, so also through one righteous act there is life-giving justification for everyone. Just as Adam messed it up in the beginning, Jesus is trying to make it right. And today we don't have a tree of life that literally holds, that stands in front of us and gives us shade in our place of temptation. That would make sin so much harder to do. Not saying I wouldn't do it, I'd still do it a lot, but it would make it harder to do. But in reality, we still do have a tree of eternal life that stands before us everywhere we go and and gives us shade in every single one of our temptations, and it's the cross. Because at that tree of life, we were justified for whatever we had done and made new. Every time we find ourselves in the temptation of Satan, the cross is ever there. And we find ourselves in its shade and under its protection. The only thing we have to do as Christians, this is our entire job. You guys ready for this? Earth-shattering theology, very simple. Just keep your eyes on the cross. Easier said than done, I know. But the entire Bible is around that simple idea. Just keep your eyes on the cross, in the beauty of it, in the reminder of it. Let me be clear Satan's gonna come and he knows exactly how to get you. He knows exactly how to get me. I don't know what your temptations are here. This is how he gets me every time. You ready? You are not good enough. You're not righteous enough. You don't know enough. You're not holy enough, whatever. That's his go-to with me. And every time, every single time when I hear that voice coming from the tree, I find my eyes drifting from the cross and looking at him. And the further my eyes drift away from this tree of life, the further away it comes from the truth. Until eventually I'm believing the lies he's telling me. I'm not good enough. Look at all the sins I still struggle with, all the temptations I still fall short on. And I find myself dead staring Satan, and he has my full attention time and time again. All I ever have to do is just keep my eyes at the cross. At the cross, I'm told by Jesus, who has a stronger voice, that I am so valuable that he was willing to do that for me. At the cross, I'm told that I am worthy and I am good enough, that I can be forgiven. It doesn't matter what I've done it matters who I'm following. Just keep your eyes on the right tree. Whatever temptation or struggle you have in your life, Satan is going to try the only way he can ever win is by drawing your attention from the tree of life to him. Don't give him an inch. Keep your eyes fixed on Christ. I wear I usually wear, I don't wear it when I preach, but I wear a cross necklace. It's really dumb. It's, you know, it's just a necklace. But I can't tell you how many times I find myself rubbing it, holding it, or anything, just to constantly remind myself, hey, the cross is here. In this moment, the cross is here. All you ever have to do is just keep your eyes on the cross. We're going to find ourselves at the tree of life and the tree of death, moment by moment. What are we going to choose? Second, and this is a fun one, submit to God, resist the devil, he will flee from you. That's how we started. James chapter 4, verse 7. You have a remarkable power to, like, put Satan in his place. Now, let me be also clear. You don't. God does. And therefore, you do. One thing I think that we find ourselves talking about all the time is the way we talk about temptation, we need to flip. Because we often talk about how much power it has over us. You know, oh, I'm in the throes of temptation. Oh, it's really difficult. Oh, it's overcoming. Yes, all of those things are true. But all of those things are true because we're failing to grasp the power we have over it we're failing to realize that the power of God is greater than the power of Satan. And you have the ability to rebuke him in the God's name. Now, this is something that's super different from the way we often talk. But I found myself frequently, this even sounds weird to say out loud, which I know it shouldn't, but it just does. That's been a big prayer of mine recently. Praying to God to help me overcome Satan, rebuking Satan in moments. When I can hear his voice creeping into my brain, and I know because that's not the voice of God that I'm used to. It's something different. I know, okay, that voice, that's dangerous. That moment of realization, rebuking Satan, and it works every time. Why? Because if you rebuke Satan, he'll run from you. He has to. A lot of times I think that we think that Satan has this massive army that's all-consuming and all around us. It's completely controlling, and there's nothing we can do. We're helpless and hopeless, and the reality is he's kind of an insurgent who has to run person to person. And if you resist him, he has to flee. He's not going to do a stand-up battle with God, even over you, because he'll lose that every time. You bring God into the moment, he's going to leave. He doesn't want to mess with God. He's tried that a handful of times. It's never gone well. Empowering your moments and your decisions with God's given power to you is going to be remarkable. Keep your eyes on Christ and the cross and overcome him. One thing that's always been incredible to me is how much trust God's put in me and put in you. Donna and my dad and Patty have the, have the privilege slash not privilege of working with me on a daily basis. I'm really good at the big stuff. Bible studying, curriculum writing. You have, a, you have a Bible question, please come to me. I love studying. Love it. You give me a piece of paper and say, hey, make sure this, this gets in that mailbox. No chance. I am literally, I, it's terrible. There have been so many times where I think Donna makes two copies and hands me one and says, hey, Bishop, get that in the mailbox. And then immediately goes and puts it in the mailbox knowing it's not going to get done. I am wildly irresponsible with that kind of stuff. So when I read the Bible and I see the power and responsibility God's given me, it's pretty remarkable. And God has given you. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19, to a rebellious people, mind you, they've already experienced a lot of the wilderness wanderings, and if you haven't read those in a while, here's the the Cliff Notes version. Israel really struggled to stay focused on God to any capacity. Constantly went every which way they could to avoid God. And in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19, it says this, I call heaven and earth as a witness against you today that I have set before you life and death. Choose life. The decisions of life and death are in our hands. And the reason that we have that power is very simply because we embrace the the power of God's love. The power of our choice imbued with the power of God's love means that there is nothing you can't accomplish for him. If you believe it, use it. How can this change your prayer life? How can this change your little moments? How can this change your conflicts at the tree if you truly believe that you do have power, and not only that, you have God's love as the backing for your power? What can you accomplish in his name? What great things can you do? And in how many ways can you strike devastating blows to evil? Spiritual warfare is something that has really kind of dominated a lot of our study behind the scenes. Both dad and I and the eldership, we just did a huge study on spiritual warfare. And the more I read about it, the more I realize I do not ever, ever give it the response it needs. Nor do I give it the emphasis it needs. Every moment we're in conflict. It's our responsibility to realize our role in it and to fight it. Lastly, somehow I'm still going long. I had three sermons that I could have done and I'm still going to go long. Gee, man, italy. Genesis chapter three, verse six. The last thing we need to do: first, use the power that's given to us. Second, focus on the cross. And third, retrain our eyes to see. Then the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at. This is a, one of the, Satan's biggest things: is he often lets our creativity and imagination do the damage for him? All he ever has to do, all he ever had to do, was just kind of look at it and say, "See this fruit?" Just kind of step back. And Eve did the rest. Retraining our eyes to see things is going to be very valuable. There is a lot of things that Satan tries to get you to see. And if you see it his way, you'll lose every time. What do I mean by that? Well, sex, power, wealth, respect, escape, insecurity, any number of things that you may struggle with, all Satan ever has to do is just hold it out. But if we retrain our eyes to view things the way Christ does, focus intentionally on revaluing sex and power and wealth, respect, escape, pride, whatever, can allow you the opportunity to mitigate Satan at his best. If Eve looked at that fruit and had eyes to see what it really was and didn't see its delight or its beauty but saw its temptation there, What would she have done? Dad often says in sermons that he's not tempted with Brussels sprouts. Makes sense. Because if you knew that it was Brussels sprouts, you probably wouldn't have done it. How many times in your life and in my life have we made bad decisions, committed sins that we look back on and say, man, that really hurt. Because in the moment, all Satan had to do was just keep us focused on it and make sure we really didn't think about it too much in the right light. Retraining our eyes to see what's really in front of us and what's real, is going to be very, very important. Had Eve done it, I think things would have gone differently. I'd like to conclude with a passage out of the book of Romans. Romans 7, verse 22. For in my inner self I joyfully agree with God's law, but I see a different law in the parts of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. What a wretched man that I am, and who will rescue me from this body of death? One thing that's really interesting in the study of Paul um, is the amount of things he struggled with that we don't see. We only get glimpses of through the text. One of them is that he struggled mightily with depression. Read 2 Corinthians chapter 1 in the lens of depression, you'll see exactly what I mean. We see that he wrestled so much with things that were overcoming him. Things that he felt he couldn't control. He even talks about it here that sometimes Satan seems so strong. The tree of death is so big, it's so great, the allure of temptation is so strong that he can't refocus his eyes, he doesn't feel like, he feels like he's powerless inside of it. And then, do you remember how this passage ends? It ends in the glory of Christ Jesus. Because whereas Paul was weak, he wasn't. Jesus was strong. Before us in our life, we're going to find ourselves battling every day in front of trees of death. Excruciating hard, ugly, painful battles. But there has to be a victor every time you walk in front of the tree. I wish that was not the case. I wish you could retreat, but there is no retreat in spiritual conflict. But the tree there in the beginning is the starting point of our narrative. It's the tree where things could have been different but weren't. It was the tree where Eve could have had victory but found defeat. And it was from that tree that another tree was fashioned thousands of years later in the cross. One thing that's really cool is the whole Bible is a story of trees. Genesis chapter 1 literally starts with the tree. And Revelation chapter 22, it ends with the tree of life again in heaven. The whole point is getting back to that tree. And every time along our way that we find ourselves in conflict with Satan, let's learn from the past, let's engage in the conflict. Make it real in your life and realize that the whole biblical narrative is spiritual conflict, us, versus ourselves. And Frequently we lose. I often lose the war to Satan. I often give in to the flesh. I often forsake my spirit. I often follow my own law. My heart is a battlefield. It's a war zone. It's a, it's a, it's a morgue. It's full of carnage. My spirit is bloodied. It's dying and it's stained so often from the conflict I find. You know what the beauty is? My God's victorious. And through him, I can be too. Today, I want to encourage you. I don't know where you are, but I know this. Every one of us finds ourselves in the shadow of doubt, fear, insecurity, temptation. We find ourselves standing just like Eve in front of the tree of death. Choose life, God says, and he'll empower you to overcome. Conquer in his name. Focus on the right tree, rebuke Satan, and refocus your eyes on him. I don't know where you are. I don't know what you're struggling with. I don't know what your battle is. I don't know what your tree of death is, but I do know this. Don't go through it alone. The power of prayer is real. Spiritual conflict is real. And look around. You have a room full of comrades who want to jump in and fight with you. Let's fight together. Wherever you are, whatever you need. There are people in the back that want to talk to you. Whether it's dedicating your life to King Jesus whether it's overcoming a battle that you're in, we'll be standing there waiting for whatever you need. Let's stand and sing together.